I'd like to begin tonight with a story about Zen master Suzuki Roshi. And this story comes from the book Crooked Cucumber by David Chadwick. David, who was a longtime student of Suzuki Roshi, was at a Dharma talk given by him. At the end of the talk, there was the opportunity to ask questions. David asked, Suzuki Roshi, I've been listening to your lectures for years, and I really love them, and they're very inspiring, and I know that what you're talking about is actually very clear and simple, but I must admit, I just don't understand it. I love it, but I feel like I could listen to you for a thousand years and still not get it. Could you please put it in a nutshell? Could you please reduce Buddhism to one phrase? Everyone laughed. He laughed. What a ludicrous question. I don't think any of us expected him to answer it. He was not a man you could pin down, and he didn't like to give his students something definite to cling to. He had often said not to have some idea of what Buddhism was. But Suzuki Roshi did answer. He looked at me and he said, everything changes. And then he asked for the next question. Everything changes. This is something not out of the grasp of our understanding. If we only just look at the time, however long it's been that we've been sitting here, there's sure to have been change. You know, from first arriving, hindrances, attack, multiple changes, dissipates. At times, maybe strong body pain, intense body pain. And then one day, it's less. It changes. We look at the breath. It changes. In the course of a day, how many mind states? They come, they go. Thoughts, they come, they go. Everyone knows this to some extent. And yet here's this quite famous Zen master saying this is Buddhism in a nutshell. And I can really verify that Zen masters do not like to give you anything to hang on to. When I first sat with a um, Hogan-san, the Zen master who gave me my name, I, I was very taken by him. Uh, really appreciated his teachings. And I had sat a week-long retreat with him, then went back to where I was living, and he was coming to town to do an evening talk. And so I wanted my husband to come and meet him. And he came, you know, we had the evening, it was quite wonderful. And then driving away, my husband's in silence, and you know, I'm anxious to know, because I felt like I've just come in contact with this jewel of a man. So I say, well, what, you know, what did you think? And he says, no handlebars on that guy. You know, they, they just don't want to give you any trappings for the mind. <laughs> but here's Suzuki Roshi. Everything changes. And, you know, Suzuki Roshi is definitely not the only Buddhist teacher, Buddhist master, to emphasize impermanence. When we go back to the Buddha, time of the Buddha, the Buddha one time uh, Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha, he asked him a question I'm sure we would all love to ask him. He said, Venerable Sir, it would be good if the Blessed One could teach me the Dhamma in brief. But we all want to know. <laughs> and the Buddha answered by giving a short discourse on impermanence. The time of the Buddha's death, his last statement, all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. Strive on untiringly. So this fact of life some, a fact of life that, you know, almost everybody has some understanding of, is really easy to see on one level. And yet, this same fact of life, when it's really deeply understood, becomes a gateway to liberation. 
The practice that we are doing here is called insight meditation. (laughs) In case you didn't know. (laughs) You know, when we hear that, it can bring up the question, well, what kind of, what does insight mean? What kind of insight? And we will in our practice discover different kinds of insight. We'll have personal insights where we might uh, just see something about ourselves in a whole new light as we practice. We might have psychological insights into um, the makeup of our psyche and habituated patterns that we have, karmic conditioning that we have. And then there is what's called Dhamma insights, which is really uh, what the term insight meditation is referring to. And these Dhamma insights are um, defined as being an intuitive flash that reveals the three characteristics that are common to all experience, that being the seeing into anicca, impermanence, seeing into dukkha, the suffering or unsatisfactory nature of experience due to its changing nature, and anatta, the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience. So as we do this practice, This is the type of insight that can really uproot the forces of greed, hatred, and delusion in our minds, that can help uh, to really unbind the heart. These three characteristics are what we see into over and over and over again. You know, it can be in our practice that at times we might really be uh, just naturally seeing impermanence, seeing the arising and passing away of experience. At other times, we might be really in touch with the unsatisfactory nature of experience. You know, some retreats where we have what we call a dukkha retreat, and just this unsatisfactoriness meets us. Um, every time we're with experience, it feels heavy, weighty, or we're just seeing into how things are so unsatisfactory. And sometimes it might be that we're really touching into the impersonal or insubstantial nature of experience, that there's no strong sense of solidity of I, me, or mine, just conditions unfolding. So tonight, I'm going to focus on impermanence. And there's going to be a series of talks that will speak to uh, all of the three characteristics that uh, Marcia and I are going to share this series. And it won't be uh, quite a linear, you know, one after the other progression, but over the next few weeks, we will speak about each of these characteristics. But tonight, focusing on impermanence, and I think it's helpful to know that um, you know, any one of these characteristics can be a gateway to liberation. And when we deeply understand one characteristic, it leads us into the un- understanding of the other two. Tonight, impermanence. I'd like to share an enlightenment song from a nun who lived in the time of the Buddha. Her name was Mitakali. And before she ordained, she was said to have been a very angry and difficult person, very self-centered. And she actually ordained upon hearing the Satipatthana Sutta, the sutta that describes the practice that we've all been doing here. And then she was not one of the fortunate ones that, you know, just in hearing the words of the Buddha became fully enlightened, that she actually struggled for a number of years. But why I wanted to read her poem of enlightenment is because it clearly describes what was happening in her mind at the time of liberation. So this is from Mitakali. 
Although I left home for no home and wandered full of faith, I was still greedy for possessions and praise. I lost my way, my passions used me, and I forgot the real point of my wandering life. Then, as I sat in my cell, there was only terror. I thought, this is the wrong way. A fever of longing controls me. Life is short. Age and sickness gnaw away. I have no time for carelessness before this body breaks. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teachings has been done. It sounds so simple. And as I watched the elements of mind and body rise and fall away, I saw them as they really are. I stood up. My mind was completely free. The Buddha's teachings has been done. If nothing else, it can confirm that we are on the right track. As we sit here and watch the elements of body and mind arise and pass away again. And yet, it's quite likely that we aren't like Mitakali, completely free. So how is it that this everyday truth can be a gateway to liberation? And yet, this liberation can still seem so intangible, difficult. How come we, although we have some understanding of it, are not completely free? In the understanding of impermanence, it needs to penetrate our being. It needs to be seen and felt and experienced so deeply and so directly that we dispel the illusion of permanence. For many of us, maybe most of us, we don't live our lives from the truth of impermanence. There may be times when we are in touch with impermanence, when we are accepting of impermanence. The autumn colors, they're very beautiful. It feels really easy to look at the trees and to open, to be accepting. The other day I was driving down uh, one of the back roads around here, And it was just breathtaking beauty of so appreciating the colors. And then I suddenly thought, hmm, how come I don't appreciate my aging skin turning different colors? You know, I don't quite see it in the same way. Selectively choosing when impermanence is okay. It might be that we're sitting here intense back pain, and suddenly it disappears. We're probably okay with this. We can probably rest in the scene of this impermanence. However, if we're sitting and we've experienced a a period of time where the concentration is strong, mindfulness, effort, all of the seven factors are in balance, we're just, you know, cruising along, And then suddenly things change. Suddenly we're caught in a hindrance. It becomes a little bit harder to accept impermanence. We become selective again. We're happy when it's going well, but when it shifts and it's not, it's harder. Sometimes this causes intense suffering. 
I remember a period in my own practice, it was quite a sustained period, where it was the just how I like it practice, where it was that effortless flow, and then suddenly it changed. I felt really betrayed, you know, I've betrayed by the Dhamma, you know, and I felt like I was lost, I was forgotten, lost. Very, very painful, led to really deep suffering. You know, I had accepted uh, the way my practice was when it was cruising, but when it changed, not so much acceptance. Another common tendency that we have, which keeps us from recognizing impermanence, is that we so often take our lives for granted. If we just look at life on retreat, we might take for granted the end of the retreat, that one day we will leave here. We might take for granted the end of the day, that tonight we will actually go to our beds and sleep, take for granted waking up in the morning. Even in our sitting practice, we can many times see how we take for granted our breath. Breathing in, breathing out, we believe there will be a next breath. this robs us. It robs us of a vitality of being wholeheartedly present, of really knowing just this breath, being vitally alive, awake, and alert for it. Just notice in your practice those moments when there is no expectation of the next breath, the next step. I once had a teacher named Osho, and he said, every day I tell you to wake up, and every day you say tomorrow. This is something that I heard him say many times. And then there came a point in my own life where I started to see this tendency. It happened at a time when I became very, very sick, and I actually thought I was going to die. There came a day when I thought, today is the day I will die. And at that time, I had a few friends around me, and would, um, you know, I don't know, I can't remember the exact questions or or situations that would happen in, but I could see that I would um, say something and they'd say, oh, tomorrow. And it it was like a really bizarre statement to me to hear somebody talk about tomorrow when from the place I was sitting in, tomorrow didn't exist. I didn't have hope for tomorrow. And it was a very, had a very profound effect upon me. You know, um, obviously, I didn't die. I'm still here. Um, but it had quite a lasting impact. And I found for a long period of time after that, it really impossible to plan for the future. You know, if somebody would say, well, next week, why don't we do something? And I got next week? You know, it would just throw my mind into the gap. There was such a strong feeling of impermanence, no certainty about the future. How could one possibly plan? And then at one point I realized that, you know, uh, it was helpful at time to make plans, that one simply had to be ready to let go of those plans uh, when they weren't appropriate. There was once a famous sage who was asked where all his wisdom came from, and he responded by saying, I live as a man who, when he wakes up in the morning, 
doesn't know if he will be alive in the evening. So when we can stop taking our lives for granted, when we can be fully present in this moment, it's where we are living from the place of knowing the truth of impermanence. There might be times in our lives when we get jolted into the recognition of the truth of impermanence, which can help happen through you know, sudden death of a, someone dear to us, happen through illness, um, can happen even in little situations in life. I was one year flying to Colorado and uh, was aboard a large old 747. And, you know, boarding the plane, my husband commented to me, well, this is a pretty old plane. (laughs) And sure enough, it was. It took us a long time. We were delayed in taking off because there were some lights on the, the, I don't know, dashboard, whatever it is of a plane that were malfunctioning. Um, So we were quite delayed in taking off. We finally took off. And then we're heading for Denver. As we arrive in Denver, the plane came down. And just as we were about to land, it went up into the air again. And then soon after, the pilot comes on the intercom system, and he said that uh, we're going to fly around for a while because the, uh, on the initial attempt, the landing gears hadn't come down. So in hearing this news, you know, as far as my mechanical understanding goes, a plane needs landing gears to land. So it was like, whoa, what does that mean? You know, are they going to come down? And it was a very interesting moment because, you know, around me I could hear people chatting away. I was sitting beside my husband. It's like, how was I going to respond to this moment? You know, and on one level I thought, yeah, I could just have the old Aussie attitude of, she'll be all right, mate, you know, and just sit there as if nothing's happening. And, you know, as it was, it could have been fine. Or I thought, well, you know, I could throw my arms around my husband and be in the grip of, you know, holding that love that we share. Um, Or I could just sit and be with what was happening in me. And that was what I chose to do in that moment, to really pay attention to my response. Um, If there was fear, which I think there may have been a momentary fear, which soon passed, and then just the, the knowing that if this was the moment of death, I wanted to be fully present. I wanted to be right there. And I would use every tool that I had learned to do so. It really was a, a reminder in that moment that we can at times fall back on our practice. There is something to help us. We are learning an incredibly valuable way of being with experience. And it's a great training for death. The other side, or you know, just in being, really allowing ourselves to be with impermanence, not taking it for granted. Um, and Nagarjuna, in this short poem, expresses something of the other side. Life flickers in the flurries of a thousand ills, more fragile than a bubble in a stream. In sleep, each breath departs and is again drawn in. How wondrous! that we wake up living still. So 
So we can find that, you know, we have tendencies to selectively open to impermanence or that we take for granted uh, our lives. And this keeps us from seeing impermanence. And this impermanence gets concealed by continuity, by the illusion of continuity. And this is when we fail to give wise attention to our experience. But this is always only temporary. Know that one day life will reach us in a way that exposes to us this truth of impermanence. I'd like to speak about a couple of areas that we tend to gloss over the truth of impermanence. The first being that of relationship. We live in a world of interconnectedness. Our world is made up of many different relationships. And again here, it may be that we are selective in the scene of impermanence, that when we have distance, uh, distant peripheral relationships, that we're quite happy to have people come and go in our lives. But when it's dearly beloved people to us, it becomes much more challenging. It happens a lot of times that we will slip into the illusion of permanence. That we may be in a relationship with a partner, it's going well, we're both quite happy, contented, and we start to on some level believe that that is the way it's always going to be, that this will last forever. And this is just not true. Because in any two people coming together, there is always going to be a moment of parting, of separating. The separation may happen because of many different reasons, but it's inevitable that one day there will be a parting. It tends to be if we have slipped into uh, the thinking that this is permanent, going to last, that when this happens, we again take it personally. We again get caught in a lot of grief, sorrow, pain, suffering. We may have seen this happen on the retreat. Even though we don't speak on a retreat, they tend to be very intimate with the people around us. And, you know, it could be um, a sense of loss if we've been sitting in the hall, been sitting beside someone, and they're a very dedicated yogi, and we feel like our practice really benefits from practicing in proximity to them. And then suddenly they start sitting in their room. We might feel abandoned. Or in just the nature of the retreat space at the forest refuge, it has people arriving and leaving almost totally unannounced. You know, for some of us, we might catch a glimpse of the, the leaving documents on the board for some people, and it gives us a bit of a warning. But many times, fellow yogis just simply disappear. And it can stir up a lot. It can stir up abandonment. It can stir up fear, insecurity, uncontrollability. We forget that This is all changing. We really find in our lives that through relationships, through being close and intimate with people, that we will experience loss. And that this loss takes us directly face to face with the uncontrollability of life. And this is where many times in our lives, the living of our lives, we try to protect ourselves from experiencing this. 
because it can be so frightening, so fearful. We feel so vulnerable. We find in our lives that when someone has been dear to us and is no longer there, there is an absence when something that is there at one moment and is gone in the next. It can be a strong sense of absence or loss. And the Buddha actually experienced this loss. Um, It was said that at the time of the deaths of Sariputta and Magallana, the two chief disciples of the Buddha, he said, Bhikkhus, this assembly appears to me empty now that Sariputta and Magallana have attained final nibbana. The, the assembly was not empty for me earlier. He also went on to say, It is amazing on the part of the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, that when such a pair of disciples has attained final nibbana, there is no sorrow or lamentation in the Tathagata. His understanding of impermanence was so deep that there was just the knowing that this is how things are. And he said, May what is born come to be conditioned and subject to disintegration not disintegrate. That is impossible. He understood deeply that this is just the way things are. He was able to face loss without being broken by it, grief-stricken. Knowing it was in accordance with natural laws. We may not have the same depth of understanding that the Buddha had, but we can still use these same lessons in life to help us to understand more deeply, to bring us closer to the truth of impermanence. And I'd like to share something of this in the way that it was expressed by Ananda. And it happened that in the year that the Buddha died, it was quite a big year in the Buddhist world where many people were dying. It was said that, uh, well, Sariputta and Moggallana died, and then a beloved king named Pasanadi all died within a year. And so Ananda was experiencing strong loss. The Buddha, his teacher, also departing. So this is what he said. He said, My companions have passed away. The master too is gone. There is no friendship now that equals this. Mindfulness directed to the body. The old ones now have passed away. The new ones do not please me so much. Today I meditate alone, like a bird gone to its nest. In those moments of loss, we can come home to our nest. We've put so much energy into trying to defy this truth of impermanence. But instead, in these moments when we are truly faced with it, we can fall back on our practice. We can apply mindfulness. We can look deeply into the very nature of this mind and body, not needing to go anywhere else to learn the truth of life. It can be really helpful to pay attention to any type of loss that we encounter. And not to wait until it's our most dearly beloved friend that dies, but just to notice loss as it occurs. You know, it can be the breaking of our favorite teacup, the loss of our favorite watch, 
it can be um, in practice the loss of concentration the loss of our favorite walking space I remember at one time in my own practice I was really in touch with this sense of loss and there was this sense of loss even when really unpleasant states disappeared. It was just knowing they were gone. (coughs) If we pay attention to the little losses in our lives, it helps us to train to be with the losses where we're more deeply attached, more deeply entwined. But if we pay attention to any degree of loss, we can stay with the process. You know, often loss will bring up fear, despair, anger, sadness. And rather than to deny these states, we learn to open to them so that we can see that these too are impermanent states of mind. Another way that we struggle with impermanence is in relationship to our bodies. Our bodies hold such a strong sense of who we are, of this body belonging to me, you know, my legs, my arms, my head. Um, And this is why it becomes very important to pay attention to the experience of the body, to have mindfulness of the body. Because when we really start to take ownership of this body by not paying attention, you know, the body seeming so solid um, and we become so attached to it, then when we encounter change, it becomes excruciating because our whole sense of identity is tied up in having a healthy body, a fit body, uh, a youthful body, and then things change. And if that's our identity, it's going to be very, very painful. Our cultural conditioning doesn't help us at all. You know, I was flicking through a magazine and came across a caption that said, you don't have to grow old. And then, you know, looking in magazines, there's all these anti-aging products against aging. You know, that we're continually um, trying to defy this aging process as if aging is something that happens to people who are less fortunate. So the more that we attach or identify with this body as being who we are, the more we will suffer as it changes. I'd like to share another poem by a woman uh, from the time of the Buddha. She was uh, a beautiful courtesan named Ambapali. And then she was said to have been so beautiful that when she first was coming to visit the Buddha, and the Buddha knew that she was coming, he told all of the monks to guard their passions so that they would not lose their, their heads over her beauty. Such was her beauty. And she wrote this poem, and I think it really you know, is meant to jolt us out of the, you know, uh, the fond relationship one can have with one's body and help us to strive on with diligence. So I'm just reading parts of her poem. My hair was black and curly, the color of black bees. Now that I am old, it is like the hemp of trees. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Fragrant as a scented oak, I wore flowers in my hair. Now, because of old age, it smells like dog's hair. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My eyes flashed like jewels, long black. Now they don't make anyone look back. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. 
I had a sweet voice, like a cuckoo in a thicket. Now cracked and halting, you can hear my age in it. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My hands were beautiful, set off by rings, gold as the sun. Now, because of old age, they are radishes or onions. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My breasts were beautiful, high, close together and round. Now, like empty water bags, they hang down. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. My feet were beautiful, delicate, as if filled with cotton. Now, because of old age, they are cracked and rotten. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. This is how my body was. Now it is dilapidated, the place of pain, an old house with the plaster falling off. This is the teaching of one who speaks truth. Our aging process. This is the Dhamma unfolding. Cramps in the foot. (laughs) This is the Dhamma unfolding. (laughs) It can be a gift rather than a curse. It doesn't mean it won't be painful, that we won't at times be confronted. But if we pay attention, it is where we can come to deeply know this fact of life. Sri Nisargadatta was once asked what it was like to be an old yogi, and he replied, Oh, I just watched the memory decompose on an almost daily basis, and he roared with laughter. Do we roar with laughter as we see the skin sagging, the wrinkles appearing, the joints getting stiffer? We won't if our understanding of impermanence is only on a conceptual level. It has to be deeply realized. And not to be hard on ourselves because we fall into these illusions. No, we just do. But we're making an effort to wake up from this delusion. So using just this body in its aging as a means to know truth. To know that this body is just subject to the natural laws of the world. I think it can be really helpful to uh, pay attention to nature as a way of really getting in touch with this truth of impermanence. The fall in New England, the perfect place to come to know impermanence. We are so surrounded by it with, you know, just watching the cycles of life and death. Watching, you know, in the, in the fall, watching the state of decay, things changing. Walking outside, the smell of it is in our noses. You know, it's just evident, looking through the sense doors, we experience this change. It can really help us to be more at ease because we too are a part of nature, subject to these same laws. And if we try and fight it, it's only suffering. It's only painful. So coming to the place of recognition that this body too is impermanent. As we contemplate impermanence, it's inevitable that we will contemplate death. They are so interlinked. 
there can, for many of us, be a lot of fear about the inevitability of death. So common in our culture, not just our culture, throughout time probably, that to deeply understand this configuration of mind and body sitting here will one day cease to be. It's said to be one of the most mysterious um, things of the world that we can live without grasping this truth. We can see death around us, all around us. And actually, um, not so long ago, I was watching the news, and there was this news report um, where it was interviewing some soldiers at war, in a war zone. And this particular... uh, troops, um, group of people, had had a number of their comrades killed. And so they were being interviewed about how their response was to that. And this one soldier said, the only way you can go out there and fight again is to believe that death will not happen to you. You know, that that is, it's just so strong in us that even when it's happening all around us, we can still carry this idea that death will not happen to us. And yet I know from my own experience in those moments when I've sat and really sat with the reflection on death, really let turned my mind towards the fact that this body-mind configuration will one day cease to be. What my experience has been in those moments is not that it's fearful, not that I need to protect myself from that, but when I really touch into that, there comes a deep peace. One can, for moments, however long we're in touch with that truth, cease to grasp at the fleeting conditions of life. It's a very powerful reflection to reflect on the inevitability of death. I encourage you all to take time for moments of this reflection. You know, not meant to bring up fear, or not not to put us in a state of panic and grasping at the world because we might be dead in the next moment, but really to take us to the place of seeing, in the moment of death, what is going to serve us, what is going to help us. It can only be our practice. And it can only be a realization of what our practice points to. It became evident to me, myself in, in contemplating death and um, that there, uh, you know, sometimes I can do reflections on death uh, for myself and there isn't a lot of fear. It's like, yeah, one day that will happen. Sometimes I've reflected on the death of my partner and that can hold a different poignancy. And then there's another reflection that has been the most difficult for me that um, I've found, and that's to reflect on the death of this planet. This planet that I so dearly love. This planet that has been home to numerous beings. I remember as a child never believing that the planet would make it until the year 2000. It did. It goes on. And yet, we do around us see evidence 
of a dying planet. I had quite a strong experience around this that happened right after, on the day of 9-11, actually. Um, hard to rem- easy, easy to remember it was on that day. Because on that day, as I sat in shock, as probably most of you were, not really making sense of the activities of that day, I did something that I commonly do when I'm confused, not sure. I went to the suttas, and I opened up the suttas randomly. You know, some people open up the I Ching. Um, I open up the suttas. And so as I did so, my eyes fell right down to this line that said, one day, O monks, this world will end. I read it, and I slammed the book shut. I wasn't ready to hear that. It really set me off in that moment. So I sat there. I calmed myself down. I decided, okay, I'll try again. And I made sure that I opened it to a different part of the book. And again, my eyes went straight down to this line where someone had asked the Buddha what happens when a world system ends. And he replied, most beings are reborn in the deva realm of streaming radiance. That was a little bit more comforting. (laughs) But what was so striking to me was the way that it was spoken, the way that I heard it from reading in both of these instances was as the Buddha saying it, as this was just a fact of life. And it reminded me of Hogan-san, the Zen master that I spoke of, of being with him. He is a man who loves nature. He loved to swim in the ocean. He ran on the beach. You know, he climbed mountains. He, he uh, was just so, al- he is so alive. And um, I was in conversation one day where he simply said, we live on a dying planet. And I was, again, really struck by the level of acceptance that he had. And he's not having acceptance in the way of resignation, oh, this is just the way things are, because he actively petitions the Japanese government, he actively protests, he is a very compassionate, active person in the world. And yet, he can see that there are these cycles of birth and death. And this planet, too, is a part of these cycles. is not meant to be a prophecy of doom and gloom, but it's to help us recognize that all conditioned things are of the nature to decay, and that this need not take us into a place of futility. There's another sutta that has given me strong inspiration And I also read this uh, very soon after 9-11, and it it, uh, helped me a lot. Um, And this is paraphrasing a bit of it. It's from a simile of the mountain. And the, the question was posed as to what one should do when from all directions death is approaching. And the answer being... As aging and death are rolling in on you, whatever else should be done but to live by the Dhamma, to live righteously, and to do wholesome and meritorious deeds. Even though all life is impermanent, all life is subject to change, we live with recognition of this. And in doing so, we find that we are freed from grasping, from clinging. We are freed from trying to find happiness in the fleeting conditions of life. We don't collapse into resignation, but we do that which is taking care, 
that which is kind. We live the best that we can, knowing that all conditioned things are of the nature to decay. This helps us to relax back in to a deep sense of trust, of peace, where we can discover the world free of clinging, free of grasping, free of it needing to be a certain way. We use our practice to investigate impermanence. And we don't have to go anywhere to see this truth. This breath, bringing careful attention to the breath, we discover the differences in each breath, how it's continually changing, how all of our experience is continually changing. And it's really, you probably all know, I've had some insight into, yeah, we, we know that on a conceptual level, but when we're face to face with it, we see something arise and pass away, and we experience it really directly and immediately. It's very different to just having a sense of impermanence. And the more that we can see it, the more it will help root, help uproot this habituated clinging, grasping that we have. I'd like to close with a teaching from Geshe Potowa, a Tibetan teacher who was once asked by a lay disciple, uh, what was the most important practice that one could do if one could only choose one practice? And so the Geshe replied, if you want to use a single Dhamma practice to meditate on, impermanence is the most important. At first, meditation on death and impermanence makes you take up the Dhamma. In the middle, it conduces It's conducive to positive practice, and in the end, it helps you to realize the sameness of all phenomena. At first, meditation on impermanence makes you cut your ties with the things of this life. In the middle, it conduces you to the casting off of all clinging to samsara, and in the end, it helps you take out the path of nibbana. At first, meditation on impermanence makes you develop faith, In the middle, it conduces to diligence in your practice. And in the end, it helps you give birth to wisdom. At first, meditation on impermanence, until you are fully convinced, makes you search for the Dhamma. In the middle, it conduces to practice. And in the end, it helps you attain the ultimate goal. At first, meditation on impermanence, until you are fully convinced, makes you practice with a diligence which protects you like armor. In the middle, it conduces to your practicing with diligence in action. And in the end, it helps you practice with a diligence that is insatiable. So let's just sit for a moment. May all beings come to know the truth 
of impermanence as a gateway to liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.